Good to see all you guys here this morning. Glad to have all folks visiting us online to be part of this uh, service this morning. Uh, it's, 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 it's been great. Uh, happy Father's Day to all the fathers. Yay. Yay for us. Uh, and happy Juneteenth, uh, celebrating that day. A lot, a lot of great things going on. I also want to give a shout out to Cedric, who did such a great job last week. Wasn't that great? You are the church. It's really refreshing. You know, once in a while I get off and you get real preachers in here. So hallelujah for that. We got, a, we, we, we got a, Mary, that was too loud of an amen. I don't want that. Enough of that. Don't say agree that heartily. Um, so we're in this series, Unraveling Truth, uh, how truth, the very concept of truth is becoming unraveled in a world that's becoming unraveled. And we're looking at, um, among other things, uh, various obstacles that people have to coming to the faith or reasons why people are leaving the faith. So today we're going to talk about a big one. Uh, we're going to talk about hell. It's going to be a hell of a sermon. I couldn't pass that up. Boom, boom, ching. We're entitling this message Gehenna because that is the main word that's used for hell in the New Testament. We'll say more about that a little bit later on. But I wanted to start by reading um, what is undoubtedly the most famous sermon on hell ever preached. It's by Jonathan Edwards. It's called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And he preached this sermon in 1741 uh, on July 4th uh, to a congregation in Enfield, Connecticut. And this sermon was, it's in the middle of the Great Awakening, uh, where there's a lot of the churches were, were having these uh, moves of the Spirit, uh, where people were expressing themselves in fairly extroverted ways. There was uh, almost Pentecostal, you know, people uh, crying in the middle of service, calling out to God, sometimes falling on the floor, emotional demonstrations. It was going on all over the place, and a lot of people were being converted. But there were some kind of snooty churches in the... Uh, uh, on, on the East Coast that kind of looked down on this. this. This was unbecoming, this kind of behavior. They were against this. Somehow, Edwards got invited to preach at one of those churches. Uh, and this is the congregation in Enfield, Connecticut. And, 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 and so he gives this sermon. Now, it's what he is most known for. It's not at all characteristic of his other sermons. I've read a lot of his sermons, and this is kind of stands out alone. It's also interesting, I did my dissertation on Jonathan Edwards, and the guy was a brilliant philosopher. Uh, he was way ahead of his time on some of his thinking and, and, and the nature of being and, and stuff like that. But this is what he's known for, this, this, this sermon. I'm going to read to you a little part of it. He says this to all the potentially unconverted folks in this congregation. And by the way, when he gave this sermon... Uh, Jonathan Edwards just read from, he just read a manuscript. In fact, I saw the original manuscript at Princeton uh, of Sinners in the Hands of the Angry God. And there's little markings that he has in his writing. And the dominant theory is that those markings would be the points he'd, he'd put his finger on it so he could look up at the congregation and then look down and know where he was. And so he would have these little points, about three of them on every page. So he just, he wasn't a dem demonstrative preacher, he just kind of read it. But it had such an impact that people were in this staid, proper congregation, were wailing out, calling out to God. Some people were convulsing on the floor several times. He had to stop because the clamor of the congregation was so loud, they couldn't hear him. He had a way with words. Here's what he said to all who were potentially unconverted in this congregation. The God that holds you over the pit of hell, much as one holds a spider or some loathsome insect over a fire, though I would never recommend doing that. Don't torture spiders. They're just trying to live. That God abhors you and is dreadfully provoked. His wrath towards you burns like fire. He looks upon you as worthy of nothing else but to be cast into the fire. 
He is of purer eyes than to bear to have you in his sight. You are 10,000 times more abominable in his eyes than the most hateful venomous serpent is in ours. <laughs> Later on, he says this. It would be dreadful to suffer this, fierce, this fierceness and wrath of Almighty God one moment, but you must suffer it all eternity. There will be no end to this exquisite misery. When you look forward, you shall see a long forever, a boundless duration before you, which will swallow up your thoughts and amaze your soul. And the word amaze at that point in time was synonymous with horrify. It will horrify your soul. And you will, be, you will absolutely despair of ever having any deliverance, any end, any mitigation, any rest at all. You will know certainly that you must wear out long ages, millions and millions of ages in wrestling and conflicting with this almighty, merciless vengeance. And then when you have done so, when so many ages have actually been spent by you in this miserable manner, you will know that all is but a point to what remains. In other words, you haven't even begun. So that your punishment will indeed be infinite. And then he closes this marvelous feel-good sermon by saying this. There is reason to think that there are many in this congregation now hearing this discourse that will actually be the subjects of this very misery to all eternity. The wrath of God is now undoubtedly hanging over the greater part of this congregation. Let everyone flee, fly out of Sodom, haste and escape for your lives. Look not behind you, escape to the mountain lest you be consumed. Hallelujah. Now there is a feel. Back then they knew how to preach sermons, man. I mean, they, he delivered it. He apparently didn't take the class in seminary on seeker sensitivity ministries, uh, but uh, yeah, just, he puts it out there. It, 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 it's known as a kind of literary masterpiece. I mean, you have to admire his way with words. His, his, his word pictures are incredible. God dangling you over a fire like a loathsome spider, an insect that he abhors, he just detests. And, ugh, you see why people would be convulsing on the floor if they really believe that. Now, that was pretty much the dominant view of hell. Uh, it has been at least since the Middle Ages. It involves literal fire, literal torment that goes on forever and ever and ever. I remember uh, in third grade Catholic school, just before our first confession, I was told as part of kind of Irish Catholicism that you get your lesson about hell just before first confession. So you know how important it is to confess. And for this teaching, and you knew this teaching was important because they, they brought in the priest. Usually the nuns did the teaching, but on the really tough topics like sex and hell, they brought in the priest. So you know you got to pay attention. And I don't remember quite what this priest said, but man, I remember its impact vividly because I had nightmares for the next year, year and a half of, of this same reoccurring nightmare of hell. It was just terrifying. I was always fascinated with volcanoes as a kid, and so this nightmare involved a volcano. And I was inside the volcano. And I was standing on a thin little ledge that went around, like a lip that went around the, the opening of this, this volcano. And beneath me was this boiling lava, and there's all these people in this boiling lava, and they're screaming bloody murder. They're, just, they're, they're in torment. And all along this, this little wedge, when, and I, I, you're, you're trying not to fall into this lava, so you're, you're standing on this little ledge holding yourself back. But it, 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 there's all these people that encircle this, and there was the devil there. Of course, I'm third grade, so I'm picturing the devil as standard picture of devils with horns. He's red. He's, yeah, he's got a mustache, you know. And, 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 but he's, he, he's going along this ledge, and he's taunting people, playing with them, like getting them off balance, until finally he, he pushes them into the, the lava. And he works his way around the ledge of this, this, this uh, 
volcano, finally comes up to me. He's laughing at that sinister laugh. He's got that smile. I'm terrified. And he starts pushing me, getting me off balance. And that's when I wake up. <sighs> I was just... Over and over again, I had this nightmare. I would pray to Mary all the time. Don't let the Father, Son, and Spirit send me there because I figured I'm too bad of a kid for the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit to ever pay attention to. But Mary, I thought, was my ticket. Talk to her off. We just talk to them. Tell me I'm doing the best I can. And I, I don't, don't let them send me to this place. It was terrifying. Now, the church had that, 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 that power. This, this fear, basically, hell is your worst nightmare. Imagine your worst nightmare going on for eternity. That's your idea of hell. If you get people to believe that, you've got a lot of power. And the church wields a lot of power with this, man. People will do and believe anything to avoid that. Made the church a whole lot of money. You know, when, when, when folks, especially wealthy folks, were getting ready to die, they'd, they'd wheel them into the last rites room. And for those of you who have been Catholics or are Catholic, you know, that's kind of the important send-off to get you into the you know, promised land. It's very important. And they would have on the ceilings of these last rites rooms uh, a mural of hell. <laughs> Very vivid. Demons eating people, all the rest. And as this person's laying there on the verge of death looking up at that mural of hell, they'd ask the question, are there any contributions you might like to make at the end of your life to help your passageway into the next? And uh, yeah, they, they, those cathedrals in Europe were all built, uh, or at least to a large degree, out of the fear of hell. Uh, it is... The all-time great fundraiser. Hmm. But for a, for a lot of reasons, the church began to lose authority in, uh, in the late Middle Ages, Renaissance period, Enlightenment period. And people began to question this idea of hell being this eternal torment. How is that loving, they'd ask? How is that just? And so a lot of folks assume that the Bible teaches that people are going to suffer in this fiery hell for all eternity. And since hell is no longer credible, the Bible is no longer credible. And so a lot of people gave up on the faith. And to this day, that's one of the reasons why people stay away from the faith. Anyone who is worshiping a God who will torture people forever, that's a non-starter. Uh, you've got nothing to say if you believe that. Now, we here at Willow Church, we believe the Bible is the inspired word of God. And so... That means at the very least that we have to wrestle with all of it, even its unpleasant parts. So the question we're going to ask this morning is, what does the Bible actually teach about hell? I'm going to make three points uh, on this, and I'm just going to be touching the surface. could go a lot deeper on a lot of these things, but alas, Mary is there, and the clock is ticking, so I must move on. So point number one, the language in the New Testament about hell, in fact, throughout the Bible, is metaphorical. It's metaphorical. little history lesson here. Uh, in, in the early stages of the Old Testament, they shared the belief of all ancient Near Eastern people that uh, when you die, you go to the, the underworld. They called it Sheol, Sheol. And it's just where the dead go, and they didn't differentiate between the righteous and the unrighteous. It's where everybody goes. But as time went on, and the progress of Revelation is God's continuing to reveal things to his people. They become aware that the fate of the righteous is different from the fate of the wicked. It just doesn't seem right that everyone has the same kind of fate. And so there begins to be this idea that God is not going to leave his, his people in Sheol. We, we read this, for example, in Psalms 49. It says, God will ransom my soul, the psalmist says, from the power of Sheol. He will receive me. So death, Sheol, does not have the last word, at least for the righteous as time went on, various views uh, came about. But by the time of Jesus, the standard way, at least one of the standard ways of referring to the fate of those who will not repent, those who are incorrigibly, obstinately opposed to God, the word that you would use is Gehenna. 
And that's the word that's translated hell. Now, Gehenna is actually a reference to a literal place. It's the Valley of Hinnom. It's just right outside of Jerusalem. There it is right there, the valley outside of Jerusalem. It's the Valley of Hinnom. That's Gehenna. That's hell. So if anyone ever tells you to go to hell, you can say, well, I would, but I can't afford the plane ticket. It's, it's kind of far over there. Now, it, it, I've been there. I, I visited Israel, went to the Valley of Hinnom. I've been to hell. Um, and right now, it's a really nice place. It's a beautiful place. But back in the day, in the Old Testament times, this is the valley where the pagans would sacrifice their children to this false god named Moloch. They burned the children alive. And so the Israelites associated this valley with wickedness, with fire, uh, with debauchery, with abomination. It was just terrible. We know that, that uh, from second, third century sources that uh, this, this valley became a dumping ground outside of Jerusalem. All the refuse of Jerusalem was just thrown in there. We don't know how much of that was true at the time of Jesus. But it's clear that this, this concept of Gehenna, and Jews had different ways of understanding how long does it last and what's its purpose and whatever. But the, the very idea of Gehenna, the main point of it is that it's outside the city. It's outside of Jerusalem, which is the city of God, which in the New Testament becomes the kingdom of God, a metaphor for the kingdom of God. And so Gehenna refers to everything that is not fit for the, king, for, for, for the heavenly city. Everything that's incompatible with the heavenly city, with the kingdom of God, with the character of God, it ends up in Gehenna, Gehenna this place of wickedness consuming itself. But it's a metaphor. No one at the time of Jesus or since ever thought that wicked people are literally going to go to that literal valley. It's a metaphor. But it's a metaphor that is there to express something absolutely terrible. And that's the point that we really need to get from this. Um, to reject the God of life is to choose the way of death. To reject God who's the source of all that's good and beautiful is to be going down a road where nothing is beautiful. All is ugly. All is bad. You're going towards Gehenna. And it's terrible. And so the New Testament warns us about this. No, no place, no one more so than Jesus. Listen to this. Jesus says this about Gehenna. If your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to enter life maimed or lame than to have two hands or two feet to be thrown and be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than to have two eyes and to be thrown into the fire. Now, Jesus is speaking hyperbolically here. He doesn't mean this literally. Uh, obviously, if your hand offends you and you cut it off, you haven't solved your problem. <laughs> the hand's not to blame and the eye's not to blame. You're not going to solve your lust problem by plucking out your eyes. Um, but he's speaking hyperbolically here, stating uh, things in an exaggerated form for emphasis. And what he's saying is it is absolutely crucial, all important, that right now we be people who are putting aside in our life everything that's not consistent with the kingdom of God. Because uh, to go in the opposite direction is terrible, absolutely terrible. You'd be better off cutting off your hand, plucking out your eyes, than to end up in Gehenna. It's just terrible. Jesus isn't trying to use a scare tactic here to manipulate people or to raise money. Uh, he's simply stating a reality. Out of love, he's stating what is real. You reject the God of life, and you're going towards the realm of death and destruction and wickedness. And uh, it'd be like if, if, if I, and this has happened to me, Talk to a kid who's considering uh, trying meth. Well, I, I, I will tell him some really horrifying stories of what I know of people who have gotten 
on meth. You, you, you try that once and you're a slave and it will rule you and it is destructive and it can kill and all the rest. And I'm not trying to manipulate the kid. I'm just, if I care at all about him, I'm saying, don't do this. Do not do this. So we got to imagine Jesus is like, don't go there. It's terrible. Pluck out your eyes. Cut off your hands if you have to. Better to live life like that than to go to Gehenna. Follow the ways of God that lead to life, not the ways of the enemy that leads to death. So the first thing is the language is metaphorical, but it's a metaphor, a metaphor for something that's terrible. If you try to take the metaphors literally, they don't make any sense. As for example, one metaphor that's used is, is that you're thrown into outer darkness when, when you go to Gehenna. Outer darkness. But another metaphor is fire. But see, fire gives light, so it can't be both. It's either darkness. But if you know you're dealing with metaphors, it's not to be taken literally, but they point beyond themselves to a different reality. And that reality, what you got to know, is terrible. Do not reject the God of life. So first point, the language is metaphorical. Second point, we bring hell on ourselves. All judgments we bring on ourselves. So there's two kinds of judgment in the Bible. Judicial. Now put your thinking caps on and follow. This is important. There's judicial or legal metaphors. And then there's organic metaphors. Uh, judicial metaphors is like a court of law metaphor where you know, God is the judge and he passes out a sentence. And in judicial metaphors, um, the sentence doesn't have anything to do with the crime. Like if you steal a car and get thrown into prison, um, there's no intrinsic connection between the prison and the car. It just was imposed on you. That's a judicial metaphor, judicial punishment. But if you abuse alcohol all your life and develop cirrhosis of the liver, well, that's an organic punishment. You brought that on yourself. Uh, your own choices brought about its punishment. And that's the way the Bible usually speaks about God's judgments. Most of the metaphors are organic. And that's an important point because the organic metaphors are more fundamental than the legal metaphors because law or, or reality is more fundamental than law. Now, follow this. There's a law that says you can't drink and drive. If you do, you're going to get a fine or you get imposed or get your driver's license taken away. Why do we have that law? Well, it's because of a reality. The reality is that drunk people cause accidents. That, and, and life will teach you that if you keep driving drunk. So to prevent that, you have a law. So a law is there to, to kind of help us walk the right way when we're too stupid to do it on our own, when, when, when reality itself doesn't teach us that. But notice that the reality is the important point. The law is there in service to the reality. So also, all the legal metaphors, they capture the justice aspect of God's judgments, but uh, um, they're not as fun fundamental as the organic uh, metaphors. And often, when you find the, uh, God portrayed as the judge imposing a sentence, if you read carefully, you'll find that what actually is happening is much more organic. Uh, in my book, Crucifixion of the Warrior God, I've got 80 pages worth of, of examples of this, but I'll give you one this morning. Psalm 7. The psalmist says, if one does not repent, God will wet his sword. He has bent and strung his bow. He has prepared his deadly weapons, making his arrows fiery shafts. Now, this is a typical ancient Near Eastern portrait of God as judge. He's got a sword out there. He's getting it nice and shiny. He's got his, bows, his arrows, fiery arrows already. He's going to shoot at the wicked and chop off the wicked and all the rest. But look what actually happens when God wets his sword and prepares his fiery arrows. The guy goes on, see how they, the wicked, conceive evil and are pregnant with mischief and bring forth lies. It's all organic. If you're pregnant with evil, 
If you, if you conceive evil, you get pregnant with mischief, and then you give birth to lies. You'll make a pit, digging it out, hoping someone else will fall into it, but you fall into the pit that you have yourself made. Their mischief returns upon their heads, and on their own heads their violence descends. So, and this is, a, this is a, a, a conception that you have throughout the Bible, that our sin comes back on us, our violence comes back on us, our mischief comes back on us. And that is the divine judgment. It's organic. The punishment is built into the sin. And God is the one who created this world, and so these are judgments of God, but it's not like God has to impose a sentence. What God usually does in bringing judgment on people is he come, there comes a point where he says, I have to let you go your own way. And then you suffer the consequences of your own sin. That is the judgment of God. And God's really got no choice because God's given us this free will and he will not coerce us. He will not lobotomize our brains to cause us to have true thoughts and true feelings and force us to fall in love with him because freedom is the whole thing. Love's got to be chosen. And so if people come to the point where they, this is what they choose, they will not repent and turn around. God says, I got to let you go. And now we bring on ourselves the hell of our own punishment. C.S. Lewis, one of my favorite Christian authors, uh, he, he says this. He says that there are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, thy will be done. And those to whom God says in the end, thy will be done. This kind of captures it. And if we get to the point where we're resolved in our stance against God, that's going to be our will. We want to do our way. We want to go about be our own boss and create our own reality, uh, God says, thy will be done. God gives us what we want. Uh, and that is Gehenna. So it's metaphorical, but we bring hell on ourselves. And the third point, and this is, I think, the really important point, is that hell expresses the love of God. Because if God is love, everything that God does expresses the love of God. I, I want to take a pause here for a moment and, 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 and zoom out a little bit to talk about how we hold faith here. And you'll see why this is important in a moment. Uh, in some places, the, the, the idea of, of being a Christian is you hold this set of true beliefs and they're all equally important. We rather advise people to structure their faith more in terms of concentric circles, of degrees of importance. So at the center, the center of everything, our most important foundational conviction is that I, I, the cross, the cross reveals what Jesus is all about. It reveals the character of God. God is other-oriented love. It reveals what God thinks about us. Uh, it, it tells us what, what, what we're worth and what every other person is, is worth. The cross is the center of everything. And then just outside of that is scripture because we base all of our beliefs on scripture and the whole point of scripture is to be pointing us to the cross and bring us into relationship with the cross. Then outside of that, there are, are, there's what's often called dogma. And this is the way the church has always interpreted Scripture, the foundational beliefs of Orthodox Christianity that all Christians have always believed. Uh, it's expressed in the Nicene Creed or the Apostles' Creed. Um, and, and, and so the, we share all those beliefs. Outside of that are doctrines, which are beliefs that Christians have had at different times, but they don't agree with one another. Different denominations hold these things as doctrines, but uh, not all Christians have agreed with that. And then outside of that is the realm of opinion. So... Where does this discussion of hell fit with this? Um, well, the, the, the idea that, that there's a judgment, uh, that our actions have consequences, and that there is a final judgment, uh, and that there is a hell, that has been part of Christian dogma. Christians have always believed that. And there's got to be consequences for actions, otherwise we don't live in a moral universe. 
A universe in which there are no consequences for actions is an amoral universe. So the church has always believed that. But there's always been some disagreement or discussion about the nature of that, just like there was in Jesus' day. More specifically, there's been three main views that have been held. Uh, and I want to run through each of these views and ask the question, are they compatible with the love of God that's revealed on the cross? Because everything's got to be ultimately be compatible with that. So we're thinking about hell through the lens of the cross. So let's look at, the, at each of the three main views. The first one we've already touched on. That's that hell involves eternal conscious suffering. And there were some in the early church that believed this, uh, but it became dominant in the Middle Ages. Uh, and it began to run a loose favor in the Enlightenment period as people, more and more people came to see that as unbelievable. But it still is the dominant view. And it's got some biblical support. We've already seen the passage I read. It talks about eternal fire. Eternal fire of Gehenna. And the Bible talks about eternal punishment and eternal destruction. Now, there's other ways of interpreting those verses. That's true for all these positions. But these, this, this view has got some anchoring in Scripture. Is it consistent with the love of God that's revealed on Calvary? Well, if you're thinking about eternal conscious suffering in terms of like how Jonathan Edwards presented it, I personally don't see any way of reconciling that with the God who's revealed on Calvary. This idea that God would abhor a human being and dangle them over a fire, like a loathsome spider, and it's only this God's sheer good pleasure not to drop you right now, but he looks at you 10,000 times more despicable than the worst serpent. See, Jesus died for every human being, and that means every human being has got unsurpassable worth, so no human being is a loathsome spider. To be honest with you, if I'm really shooting straight here, if I saw a little kid torturing a spider like that, I'd get him to a counselor because that's sadistic. <laughs> that, that's sadistic. It's just, it, and if it's sadistic to do it to a spider, what is it to do it to a human being? But now to do it to a human being eternally, how, if God is other-oriented love, how does that express love? If that expresses love, what does hate look like? <laughs> you know, it's, it's, uh, I, I see no way of, 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 of at all reconciling that. But others have had a more sophisticated view of hell and yet held that it's eternal suffering. And C.S. Lewis is one of them. In his uh, the best book on defending the, the traditional view, the eternal conscious suffering view of hell, uh, his book is called The Great Divorce. And in this book, C.S. Lewis, he likens, St. Augustine said that sin is self-curvature. We, 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 we close in on ourselves. And so, Lewis pictures hell as this place where people are eternally kind of shrinking in on themselves. Uh, they move farther and farther away because they're irritated with everybody else, and they just kind of fall into their own resentments. And C.S. Lewis's view, this is what it means for God to say, thy will be done. Uh, if this is the existence you want to choose, he finally lets us choose that. And it's misery, and it's terrible, but in his view, it's more loving for God to let the reprobate, the, the wicked, go on existing in this misery because that's what they want than it is to put them out of existence. So possibly this view can be reconciled with the love of God that's revealed on Calvary. There is this downside, and the downside is this, that if you hold this view, this is something to think about, that um, it means that God's love isn't completely victorious. It means that God loses people, maybe a lot of people. And since people have unsurpassable worth, because Jesus died, paid an unsurpassable price for them, the loss of one individual is, a, is an unsurpassable loss. 
And so it raises this question, can heaven be heaven if, if we have this eternal loss? And realize that some of these could be our loved ones. And if we're living in perfect love, we'd love everybody. So we'd feel the force of that eternal loss, no one more so than God. So will God be grieving throughout eternity? There's a sad note throughout eternity, it seems, in this view. Something to think about. The second view. It's usually called annihilationism. I don't like this term very much because it sounds like God's an annihilator. Whereas I'll say in a moment that I don't think that God has to do this. But in this view, the ultimate fate of the wicked is non-existence. They're just put out of existence, annihilated, or just let go. And this view has a lot of biblical support. In fact, throughout all my teaching ministry since 1982, this is the view that I've held. At least the view that I've tended to. I'm not strong on any eschatological view, but this is the one I've been most inclined to because it's the, the one that's most dominant in Scripture. The wages of sin is death. In Genesis 2, you know, the Lord says, Adam, if you eat of this tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the day that you eat of this tree, you're going to die. Now, no, he doesn't say that if you eat of this tree, I'm going to come and kill you. And he doesn't say I'm going to inflict eternal suffering on you. He says you'll die. The wages of sin is death. That's the way the Bible usually speaks about the fate of the wicked. Now, there's other ways of interpreting those passages, of course. There always are. Maybe death isn't the last word. But it has a firm biblical grounding. Is this view consistent with the love of God that's revealed on Calvary? Always the most important question to ask when addressing any kind of theological question. What view of God does it presuppose? It seems to me that this view is consistent. Now, I don't like the word annihilation because that makes God into an annihilator. And I, don't th- I never see Jesus annihilating people. But see, in Hebrews 1, it says that God holds all things together by the power of his word. There's several verses that say that. Right now, God's holding everything in existence. You are in existence because God, God's word is speaking you. You're held in existence by God's word. So for God to send someone to non-existence, God doesn't have to do anything. He doesn't have to annihilate them. He simply has to withdraw the gift. And... Truth is, in God's judgments throughout the Bible, this is what God usually do, does. He, I got to let you go. Romans 1. I, I, I got to turn you over. I got to let you go. And he does it with a, with a grieving heart. But I, but I, I got to let you go. And if God's not going to coerce him, he's got no other choice. So in, in, in this view, this view is just because the folks have chosen this for themselves. They brought this on themselves. Uh, the, their own sin destroys them. And it's merciful. Because if God didn't let them go into non-existence, they would continue to exist eternally in this miserable state. So it's kind of a divine justice, but it's also divine euthanasia. So I think the view is compatible with the love of God revealed on Calvary. There is that, this downside, however, that once again, though people are not going to be suffering eternally, there is an eternal loss, an unsurpassable loss, because human beings have unsurpassable worth. And so you have to again ask the question, will there be this eternal sad point uh, will heaven be able to be having knowing that, that people of unsurpassable worth whom we love, whom God loves, have been lost? And that leads to the third view, which is usually called universalism. Uh, this view was espoused by a lot of people in the early church and it's been espoused sporadically throughout church history. Uh, right now it's becoming wildly popular among more progressive kind of Christian thinking. So it's, it's, it's really coming around. This view has got some good biblical support. Uh, one example is Romans 5, probably the classic passage where Paul says, Therefore, just as one man's trespass led to condemnation for all, so one man's act of righteousness leads to the justification of li- and life for all. Note, the same all that's in Adam 
are all in Christ. And just as through one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so through the one man's disobedience, the many will be made righteous. And the word many there is not like many as opposed to all. Rather, it, 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 it expresses the multitude of the all. Because he just said that all were in Adam, all in Christ. So the many is the multitude. And thank you for explaining to you. You can thank me for explaining to you what the word many means, because I'm sure it means a lot to you. All right, there you go. It actually means all. So it's got some biblical support. Of course, these passages can be interpreted differently. It could refer to all who just end up in the kingdom of God, not all of humanity in general. There's ways of interpreting it. But it seems to me this view is absolutely consistent with the, the love of God revealed on Calvary. You know, Jesus prays with one of his last breaths, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And that expresses the heart of God. God's heart is for all. If there was a way to save all, God would certainly do it. And, and since we are people who are called to live in love, and Paul tells us that love believes the best and hopes the best for everyone, I think there's biblical warrant for us hoping that this is true. I just read a review or a book that I endorsed that was written on defending universalism, and one of the people that endorsed it is Jerry Walls, and he's written a number of good books defending the, the traditional view of hell, kind of a C.S. Lewis view of hell. But he endorsed this book, and he says on the back of it that though I've spent my life defending the traditional view, I hope this view is right. <laughs> I, I, I really admire that, you know, because that's what a loving heart would do. Anyone who doesn't hope for that, I wonder, is, has your heart really been captured by love? Uh, are you harboring some kind of secret vengeance where you want to see the, some people get their due? Uh, the, the, the love of Christ doesn't do that. My concern, my real concern with universalism at least as it's espoused today, is that it often ends up kind of a cheap universalism. Uh, there, there's folks out there now who, who kind of coming to this idea that, that not only hell, but talking about the judgment of God, that, that that's sort of archaic. Uh, God is love. And they assume that because God is love, it means that God's always nice. And so they have kind of an attitude of, hey, you know, everyone's going to be saved eventually, so don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. Now, here's why that concerns me. If that's true, then what the heck are all those warnings about in the New Testament? <laughs> why did Jesus go out of his way to say, don't go there? It's terrible. What do you do with all these passages in the New Testament that give us these dire warnings about this place? You can't just say, oh, don't worry about it. No, I really don't have any problems with, with someone holding to universal salvation so long as they don't forget hell. It's got to mean something. It's got to fit into your theology somewhere. Actions have consequences. If there aren't any consequences to the actions, there's no morality in this universe. If you look at the, the early church universalists like Origen and, and Gregory of Nyssa, they had this altar, they, they were confident that in the end, everyone, everyone, even Satan will be saved. God's love is going to, in the end, capture everybody. But that in the end could be a long way out there. And they were emphatic on this point that hell will be as long as you choose it to be. Uh, because God in his relentless love, and we sang about it earlier, that there's no mountain so high he won't climb it, there's no wall so thick he won't knock it down, the relentless hound of heaven's going to pursue you to the end of the ages. And in his love will let you sink as low as you want to go to learn the lesson you got to learn. And that can be a very, very, very long time, and it's absolutely terrible. So they preached hellfire and brimstone, metaphorically, as the means by which God's going to bring about transformation of everybody into the kingdom of God. 
because uh, there's got to be consequences. So where do I stand on this? You might be wondering. You know, I, I, I've held the eternal conscious suffering view when I was first a Christian, then I went and moved to annihilationism uh, as the kind of the view that I thought was most likely. Um, I'm now beginning to wonder if, if maybe death does not have the last word. Uh, yeah, the, the, the wicked are slain and permanently slain forever. But does that mean that they're done with? In, in, in Revelations 19, Jesus shows up and the kings of the earth have all gathered to make war against the lamb. And the kings of the earth are the bad guys throughout the whole book of Revelation. And by the way, in about a month, we're going to be starting a new series on the book of Revelation. It's going to be great. I'm so stoked. It's going to be wild. Yeah. Um, and, 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 and so it, it's a brutal scene, Revelation 19, because this sword that's coming out of Jesus' mouth, he slays all the kings. And then uh, the vultures come down and devour their flesh. And it's just gruesome. Finality. They're done. But then they show up in chapter 21, these same kings, and they're bringing the glory of the nations into the heavenly city. And so there's this idea that hell is redemptive. Hell is redemptive. And the truth is that this, 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 this view's got a, some really good biblical support. You know, every knee shall bow, every tongue shall confess. Uh, you get the impression that we're part of the greatest love story ever told. And it's all-encompassing. And yet... When I read the book of Revelation and come to the end, and here's a spoiler alert. Here's what I read. And this is kind of what informs my position right now. The one I'm most inclined to. It says, the nations will walk by its light, the light of the Lamb, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. Those are the kings that just got slain by the sword that came out of Jesus' mouth, which means he's speaking truth. So what he's slaying is not people, but lies. He's freeing them from their lies, although it's devastating to them because they were identified with their lies. And, um, uh, we're, we're, oh yeah, yeah, and, and so they bring the glory in, so maybe death doesn't have the last word. But that says this, its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. So the gates will never be shut. <laughs> Why don't you say that, John? Gosh. People will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will enter it, nor anyone who practices abomination or falsehood, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. So this is the heavenly city, the new Jerusalem, the whole transformations happened, the final judgments happened, and here we are. The gates are always opened. C.S. Lewis says that hell, if it's locked, it's locked from the inside, not from the outside. God doesn't lock anyone in hell. We lock ourselves in hell. The gates are always open. The invitation's always there. And yet, there are people who are choosing to stay outside the city, to stay in Gehenna, practicing their abominations, hanging on to their falsehoods and, and all the rest. Because it's got to be chosen. And God will never, there won't ever come a point where God forces those folks to come into the heavenly city. I'm sure God's love is always working with them. Come on, come on, come on. But they can always resist. And so I have to grant that at least potentially hell's eternal. Because people can hold out theoretically forever. I hope they all come in. I, I, that's my hope. That's my heart's desire. But I don't feel warranted yet in saying that I know for sure they all will come in. I'm left with this vision, with this hope. So that's where I'm at. Whatever your view is then, and all three views can be made compatible with the love of God revealed on the cross. And I'm sure we've got all three views represented in the congregation right now. But whatever view we hold... It has to be consistent with the love of God revealed in the Calvary. But at the same time, all the metaphors point in the direction that that's the aspect of God's love you don't want to come in contact with. You don't want to go there. 
Because God's love is relentless. He will go to any depth, however low you want to sink, God's willing to let you go there out of love for you. It's terrible. So the bottom line, folks, is this. God's kingdom is coming. And we're taught in the New Testament to live with the expectation for it to come at any moment, come in our lifetime. That shouldn't be that hard to believe these days. Live with that expectation. God's kingdom is coming. And when that kingdom comes, the world will be made right. And all will be transformed. And everything in heaven and on earth, people and throughout creation, will be made, rendered consistent with the love of God revealed on Calvary. Because when the kingdom comes, that's all there's going to be. That is reality. Everything is going to reflect the love of God. So to get from the world in which we are now, where clearly not everything reflects the love of God, so much does not, to get to the world where God wants the world to be and where we'll be after uh, when Jesus returns and sets up his kingdom, we've got to go through this radical transformation. Radical transformation. Paul says that mortality has to put on immortality and that corruptible has to put on incorruptibility. The world's going to be eternalized and will be eternalized. A radical transformation. And everything in creation and everything about us that's not consistent with the character of God revealed in Calvary has got to be burned away. Paul talks about that in 1 Corinthians 3. That we come uh, before the throne of God and it's like a fire that purges us. It, it, it purifies everything about us that can be made consistent with the love of God. Like fire purifies gold and silver and precious stones. But it burns up everything that's not consistent. Wood, hay, and stubble. And we all have to go through this, 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 this process. And that process can be hell. involves suffering. But our task is... As followers of Jesus, our task is to be evolved in that process now so we don't have to go through it later. Uh, the whole New Testament has this thrust to it. Better to refine your life now, to get rid of what you need to get rid of now than to have to get rid of it later because it's going to get harder, much harder later on. And we know that from our own experience. The longer you hang on to anything, the harder it is to let that thing go. It becomes part of who you are. So the main thrust of this teaching on hell is this. Today is the day of salvation. Our job is to make ourselves ready for God. We're called to be the first fruits, which means we put on display what ripened fruit looks like ahead of time. God's love is drawing all people at all times. Our job is to be surrendered to that and be putting on display what that looks like as a sign of what's coming in the coming harvest. And throughout the New Testament, we find that there's a sense of urgency to this. This is not something we should be ever be putting off. The whole thing about Gehenna, it's terrible, Make corrections now to be going in the opposite direction. So the Bible says today is the day of salvation. Today. Today is the day to ask the question, God, what do you want to be working on in my life? God's love is drawing us at all times, every moment. And we're either yielding to that love or we're resisting it. The scary thing is the more you resist it, the better you get at it, so the harder it gets to change. Our job is to be yielding to that. Today is the day to say, I'm all in. Today is the day to stop playing around. Some folks here maybe are listening online. You, you, you've got one foot in, one foot out. You want to have your heaven cake, but want to have your good earthly life too. And so you try to avoid all kinds of inconveniences and all the rest. But today is the day. Now is the time to say, no, I, I'm going to be all in. Now is the time to surrender your all. Just be surrendered to the love of God. Now is the time to commit to living in love as Christ loved us and gave his life for us. Now is the time when we're to be participating with God in, 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 in bringing about reconciliation of all things by means of the love of the cross. Colossians 1, 19 and 20. 
The cross is reconciling everything, and we're to be the means of, of doing that. Being peacemakers wherever we go, spreading God's love wherever we go. Now's the time to make those changes. Now's the time to silence the trickster in that brain of yours. And we all have a trickster in our brain that says, now's not the right time. I'll get around to that yet tomorrow. It'll be better next New Year's. I'll make a New Year's resolution. When I get to my 50th birthday, that'll be the time to get. When I get to the, 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 see, that's baloney. (laughs) The truth is, now's the only time you've got. Because you're always in the now. Whatever time you're in, you're in now. And this idea that now is not the right time, it's just a way of saying, I'm not going to change. It's time to put to death that lie. The time to respond is when God's calling you to something. And unless you're perfected, get this, unless you're perfected, God is calling you to something. And I doubt any of us are perfected. There's something to work on. There's something that God wants to get rid of, to purge. And that purging will involve some kind of inconvenience, some kind of suffering. You know, our flesh doesn't like it. But the whole thrust of the New Testament says, better to do it now than to have it done later on. Now is the time to make those changes when you see. And here's the thing. God's, God's love is drawing us. And God's always saying, okay, it's time to lose this thing and lose that thing and, and refine this or whatever. And chances are, if you're listening, you know what that is. You know what that is. If we're honest with ourselves, this is the time. Now is the time to be honest with yourself. What is God working on? And if you're here and you're an unbeliever, the first step you got to take is surrendering your life to Jesus Christ, which is surrendering yourself to the love of God. You commit yourself to living in the ways of Christ. Um, and, and now you start this process of refining. You join. We're together learning how to love together. That's what this is all about, learning how to love together, learning how to be Christ-like together. You join that process. And see, here's the thing. I'll close with this, Mary. If, 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 you're, if you're committed to seeking first the kingdom of God, and, and, and living in the ways of Christ, stumbling though it may be. Hell still may be a theological question that you think about or an apologetic concern that you worry about, but it shouldn't be something that you're personally worried about. Because if you're seeking first the kingdom of God, you're going in the opposite direction. If you're seeking first the kingdom of God, Gehenna is always going to be in your rearview mirror. And so believers should not be worried about hell and a good marriage worried about divorce. No, just have the relationship and, and, and you can rest in peace. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. In the end, it's the love of God. Amen. Amen. The love of God refining us now. The love of God that's going to refine us later. Hallelujah. All right. If you're here this morning or online and you have any need that could use prayer, take advantage of our prayer uh, ministers. They'd love to uh, pray with you about whatever need it may be. In the auditorium, you can come up to the front or you can get online if you're listening online. And uh, don't forget, on Tuesdays, we have a MuseCast and we have our gathering groups. Encourage everyone to be part of those. Get in those gathering groups where they go deal a little deeper with the sermon. And, uh, and, and remember the call, that the volunteers that we need uh, and really consider being a part of that. As we leave here, uh, let's do it with a sensitivity to the Spirit of God who's always calling us deeper, deeper, deeper into his love. And can we have hearts that are obedient, trusting his wisdom? When he says let go of something, it's in our interest to let it go and to let it go now. Because it's only going to get harder if you hang on. Better to do it now than have it done later on. Lord, thank you for your love, for your grace, for your relentlessness, for your willingness to pursue us to any high mountain, to break down any wall, to do whatever it takes to win our hearts over to you. Continue that process now. Give us obedient hearts as we leave this place to participate with you in bringing your love, your reconciliation to the entire world in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, God bless you guys. Go and love on the world.